It's Sunday, February 16th, and you are listening to Peanuts and Popcorn. P&P is a spontaneous podcast between two old friends on baseball and motion pictures. I'm Tom Hockney. And I'm Leo Fontana. The Houston Astros meet the press, and the results are less than satisfactory. Former Major League pitcher filed a lawsuit against the Astros, and I think we can expect more of the same. A new playoff format has been proposed, and Trevor Bauer hates it. Friend of the show, Bartolo Colon, is back in the news, and a Tigers minor league invitee has some odd housing this spring. The Cubs open their, their camp in Mesa, Arizona, and they talk about the Houston Astros. And apparently, a blockbuster trade was proposed involving Chris Bryant. We'll have all that in our classic film discussion on the Stanley Kubrick movie, Paths of Glory. Tom, how are you doing? Uh, I'm about 93% today. Actually, doing well. I, I, I'm kind of, I'm kind of struggling. I've been play, I've played a lot of pool this weekend. The wife is out of town. I've had to arrange babysitters. Mm-hmm. It's been very cold, especially at the end of this week. We've dealt with snow. We've dealt with, you know, it's been a stressful week, and I'm glad it's over. And I have Monday off. Uh, do, do you? I, I do not. But you know what? The 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 All Star Game is in Chicago this it is, weekend. It is. The, the, the NBA, the, I should say. The NBA All Star Game, and not a single Chicago Bull is represented on the team, either as an either as a starter or a reserve. And I think I gotta say, as somebody who was a big Bulls fan, especially right. when Jordan was here, this is embarrassing. This is really bad. It, it is, and I realized that while I really like college basketball. Um, it, my um, connection to, to professional basketball is directly related to how good the Bulls are. And so what's just confusing to me is I just don't understand after all of these years, now 20 years after Jordan, AJ, as I like I to know. call it, um, they're, they're god-awful. And except for, except for a little Derrick Rose brief shining moment uh, in 2010 or so, they have been terrible. And, and you know, at some point, John Paxson, it's on you, buddy. I don't know what to tell you. It's on him. They're terrible, and it's you know, I used I've watched less NBA basketball than I missed when mm-hmm. Michael Jordan was playing. You know, so I don't know. And uh, I wanted to tell you a quick story about uh, something happened to me on the way to work. I had a breakdown on the Jane Adams Tollway out there on 90, right around Route 83. What, now, was it you or your car? My, it was my car. <laughs> yeah, right. I know you break up. It was my car. But I pulled out onto the Jane Adams, and right. I suddenly hear this little something rattles through my car that's metal. Mm-hmm. Right yeah. through right through the back. I'm like, that's not good. That's not good. A little, a little further on, my power steering dies. Oh, boy. Then the, the battery light comes on. Then the oil light comes on, and I yeah. look at the temperature, and I'm redlining. I pull over. This is on Thursday. This is the coldest morning wow. of this year. You know, it's 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 zero degrees. It's zero degrees. I pull over. You know, my insurance company, I'm able to arrange a tow. They come within, it takes two hours because they're really busy towing people all over right, the, right. the county. And, uh, you know, he takes me to Billy, my mechanic, who, who fixes what turns out to be a water pump. But right. it was like the thing, the experience was, you know, it's like I'm zooming along in my six-cylinder Volkswagen Rutan, and suddenly it's like somebody shot my horse. You know, right. my horse just gets shot out from under me, and uh, it was pretty scary and pretty fucking cold too. Yeah, it sounds like it. But this kind of reminds me of this story where 
Um, and this is based on, I think this actually happened. A penguin takes his car to a mechanic and the mechanic says to, you know, he's busy. Give me a few minutes. You know, go. you can sit here. You can go next door. So the penguin goes next door for a vanilla ice cream cone. Okay. And when he comes back, the mechanic says, it looks like you blew a seal. And the penguin says, no, 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 it's vanilla ice cream. <laughs> okay. Okay. This is a family podcast. Let's quickly move on to some baseball. That's good. All right. So the, the Houston Astros hold a press conference. They meet the media. Uh, as their spring training camp opens. Uh, and Ken Rosenthal from The Athletic had a really great take on it. And I got to say that this, it, I, I would say that it could have been worse, you know, but not much worse. It made the Astros look awful. It really did. Yeah, you know, so there's two two components to this. So Rosenthal yes. not only wrote this great article in The Athletic, yeah. but he also, as an adjoiner, did I think about a half hour or so interview with Carlos Correa? Yes. Where where, yes. Correa, where Correa, in some instances, does a pretty decent job of defending the Astros in, as particularly in the World Series of 2017, where he brings up specific situations that basically says, you know, we couldn't have cheated here. Um, regardless, it doesn't matter. No. The, the 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 issue, and we we talked about this two weeks ago, and we'll keep talking about it until they issue a full apology and that they throw themselves at, at, at the at the feet of, of the ba- of the baseball world and say we made a mistake or as one uh, uh, as Mike Rizzo the GM of the National said the thing that's missing in all of this is the word cheating yeah. you cheated you need to say you cheated you, you need cheated to get up and, that's right you need to get up and apologize and said we cheated it impacted our results. We are sorry, and we won't do it again. And until you do that, you're, they're going to have these fits and starts that they're experiencing right now. And they're substantial because they're getting hit from all sides. And in fact, in California, a little league took the Astros nickname out of their league Wow! <laughs> this week. So I think I think we talked about this again, about the fact that it's going to get worse before it gets better. I still think that's the case until the Astros get in front of this properly. That that apology day tour or whatever was awful. Yeah, it was awful. And not a single. And and the the thing that they the Astros absolutely must do is they have to convince the rest of the players in Major League Baseball that they're sorry, because really, this is where. You know, the whole thing comes into direct contact with them. You know, it's how their their teammates, their comrades are going to treat them, you know, once play starts. And i got to tell you, Tom, you know, if you examine the rhetoric, especially what's been revealed by the commissioner's office, what what he identified and accused the Astros of, and then also what he admitted that he had not sufficient evidence for. And i got to tell you. Um, the Astros talked about how the report said that they used this system in 2017, but then sometime around 2018, they stopped with the trash cans because it didn't work. Okay, it stopped working. It stopped being effective. All right, who's to say, Tom, that they weren't trying other means? You know, now the Red Sox were identified as maybe relaying signs to a runner on second. Okay, using the video room to shoot a sign to the runner on second who tugs his cap for a fastball and touches his belt for a curve. All right. right. But look at it like this, Tom. Let's think about the two players who are on the field who represent the offense 
okay, who are there 100% of the time, not just when there's a runner on second. I'm talking about the first base coach and the third base coach. And yeah. they could be really relaying signs from the video room to those guys, okay? And all you got to do if you're right-hander is you look down the line, he's got his hands on his belt, fastball, he's got his hands on his knees, curveball. And you could do that all fucking season long. And I'm not saying they did it, but I do speculate that teams who start using video to cheat are going to start getting good at it. They're going to start finding better ways to do it better. And I don't trust a word that comes out of their mouth. I'm sorry. I don't. Well, you know, it, 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 the interesting thing is until they fully disclose and fully apologize and come completely clean, you're going to have these thoughts like you're having. Because quite honestly, what this reminds me of is like the, the Kennedy assassination conspiracy, folks. Um, because there were so many unknown components in a, in a free society, it allows people to create, it kind of takes on a life of its own. This story has taken on a life of its own from a conspiracy standpoint because you just don't know. Yeah. What, what we do know is that second people, uh, offensive hitter players on second base have been relaying signs since the dawn of man. Right. What the, the issue is, is that, you know, we talked about this technology is, is aiding and, and abetting them. And so what, what you're suggesting regarding the base coaches is just – it's mind-boggling, and, it the, and the only the only way that that baseball is going to get out from underneath this is if they completely come clean. And the, and the and maybe maybe what they should have done, if you think about it, is maybe given the Astros a year off from playing baseball, taking the whole team out of the major league. Yeah. And I know that makes it very very difficult from a financial standpoint, and there's many things that are that are involved. But this is going to be a major distraction that will cast shade shade across baseball for this entire season, I believe. Well, you know, the fans, what's interesting is the fans, a lot of what you hear and what people are saying, fans and writers are demanding that uh, they vacate their, their World Series title. I'm not really, I don't care. I don't and care. I don't, it, does, it doesn't matter. It does, they, they, they've already lost it in they the court of public opinion. It doesn't if, matter. If you think they've lost it, they've lost it. They're not yes. the champs. Correct. Okay? Uh, but I will say that rhetorically there is a way out for these Astros. And, and it begins with the people of Houston who had suffered so terribly uh, when that hurricane hit them. What was the name of the hurricane? I don't know. When the hurricane just wiped them out. Yeah, right, right, right. And the Astros shortly after that sort of realized that they have a good team, okay? And they have a chance to go to the playoffs. And they're thinking, you know what? We really felt like we needed to get a win for the city of Houston. When it became possible that we could be a good team and maybe go to the playoffs and the World Series. We decided that Houston needed us to, 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 to win. And we felt a responsibility to win at all costs, to give something back to the people who cheer for us. Now, that being said, we also enjoyed the winning too, okay? We enjoyed winning, we liked winning. We know how good our, our opponents are, and we know how hard it is to beat them. They're great players, they're great pitchers. We have to do everything we can. And in order to ensure our win for ourselves and for the city, we resorted to cheating. And it did make a difference. And to our teammates on other teams, our players on other teams, we apologize to you. We shouldn't have done it. We certainly wouldn't want anybody to do it to our pitchers. And uh, we promise not to do it again. Uh, the commissioner's office grants us immunity so we can be this honest. 
okay? Um, but we shouldn't have this in the game, and uh, we apologize to everyone. Now, the other issue with that is, does it open Major League Baseball and the Astros up to legal considerations? And that is for lawyers to answer. I can't speak to that, you know. Yeah, well, you, you reference um, uh, well earlier this week, uh, former Blue Jays pitcher Mike Bolzinger yes. ha- has actually already filed a lawsuit against yeah. the Houston Astros, claiming that it uh, it sped up the end of his career. I, well, this is this is kind of where because I am kind of a fiscal conservative, even though I am a Democrat, I think this is hogwash when it comes to these lawsuits. It is what it is. It's yeah. bad. It's just like steroids. People could sue about steroids. People yeah. could people could, you could sue about anything. It's part of the problem in this country. And I think that you know when you analyze Bolsinger's career, yes, he he. Str- I read that whole article. He struggled against the Astros. He struggled against other teams. There's reasons why he's not pitching in the major leagues. And it's like you know what? Yeah, it's rough. It's you know who it's rough on? It's rough on Mike Judge, who should have or not Mike Judge. Uh, what's his Aaron, name? Aaron Aaron Judge. Um, who lost the MVP to to Altuve? He, he he's got he's got a legal case more so than than Bolsinger does. And I just think. Really, what we have to do is say, okay, this is bad, this is horrible. Astros have to make this right, but we're not going to be taking lawsuits over this because I think that's just that's just crazy. Because what and and you talk about Altuve and Judge, you know, Korea defends Carlos Correa defends Jose Altuve, you know, in saying uh, pretty, that pretty pretty well, by the way, pretty well, I pretty say. well. But 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 here's the problem. Ultimately, we can't believe you until right, right. you guys own up in a way that I maybe just suggested or that you suggested, they, they won't, no one's going to believe them. You have no yeah. credibility. That's, that's the problem. That, that's the problem is that they had a faulty apology tour day and yeah. thought that it would go away. And then, you know, new manager Dusty Baker says to baseball last night, but, you know, I want you to be, keep in mind that everyone's going to be headhunting us this year. Really, Dusty? You think that baseball is going to be able to stop that? There's pitchers out there that are chomping at the bit to get at your hitters. And I mean more than just striking them out. And so if I'm Altuve, I'm going to be wearing a a, a, a body armor this yeah, season because yeah. you're going to get plunked, buddy. There's just no other way of saying it. He's going to lead the majors and hit by pitch. Right. Do you know what right. we forgot to mention about the press conference, though? And this was the best moment of the press conference was when Jim Crane says, you know, know. the commissioner's office talked about it. It didn't. It didn't have an effect on the out. It didn't affect the outcome, he says. And then Bullshit. Three, yeah. Three seconds later, they asked him a question about how he said it didn't affect the outcome. And he says, I didn't say it didn't affect the outcome. Right, right. Exactly. Okay, Donald Trump. Less you know, than after he says it, he says he didn't say it. That was right. Weird. Right. That, that's the world we live in uh, it today. It, it comes down from the top. But Rizzo on the Nats said it perfectly. Say the word cheating. You cheated. Say we cheated. That that never came up. They never used those that word. And that's that's part of the problem. This apology is bullshit. And, and until you make it right, it's never going to end. It's going to be like pig pen. It's going to be a dust a ball that follows you guys around all season long. Every place you go, it's never going to get go away until you guys all get out there, not two or three guys, but you need to have the whole team. And maybe just have Korea be the spokesman because he's obviously very he articulate. Be, he seems to be the best spoken guy out. Correct, correct. But you need to do something better than what you did last week. That was terrible. It was terrible. It was terrible. All right. So um, now, and, and, and part of the problem, too, is – 
what players on other teams are thinking about these guys. And Trevor right. Bauer is, a, right. is an example. Yeah. Trevor Bauer ripped the Astros for cheating. I mean, he went on Twitter and just, what did he say? Do you know what he said exactly? I, I mean, I don't have it in front of me. Well, it, he, he, he had a lot to say about it, but one of the things that, uh, you know, he uh, really was trying to, to, to for, for, let me just say one thing about Trevor Bauer. I, I don't always agree with that. I think he's got a couple rivets missing, to be honest with you. But in this particular case, I'm 100% with him because basically what he's saying, there's a lot of tentacles to this. That, uh, mentioning Aaron Judge not getting the uh, the MVP, Whit Merrifield not being an all-star because Altuve was. And it's just, you know, don't, don't have an, what, what his biggest gripe was. You come out with these apologies and then you're lying about the apology. T tell the truth. Yeah. Just tell the truth. And th it's, it's basically e echoing what we're talking uh, about right now. You know, they, they have to, you know, in this particular case, um, Bauer is right. Other players are right. Other players are pissed off. You know, the Dodgers are pissed off. Yeah. Um, fortunately, we've got we've got uh, you, Darvish, who's just kind of taken a, a whimsical look at this. And he's like, you know, when's the parade in L.A.? I'll be there. Yeah, you know, exactly. and he's that, so it's got this is there's so many tentacles to this that I just think that the Astros must deal with this and, and hit, hit it head on or otherwise it's just, it's taken on a life of its own. It really has. And you know, but that's, that's what cheating does. And, uh, that Trevor Bauer is kind of an angry guy. Uh, we're going to talk later how he rips. He's, he's a little crazy. He's, he's like a lot of pitchers. He's missing a couple rivets, I think. But, uh, but, but I also want to, uh, talk about a type of cheating that, uh, has sort of gone away in major baseball. And, Maybe we can be a little nostalgic for it. And I'm talking about the spitball. And this is the kind of cheating I think that uh, we can all get behind a little bit. <laughs> there was a good article by Justin Clue uh, on yeah. where the, the history of the spitball. The history of the spitball, when it first comes into being, right around the turn of the century, around 1902, it's first used. And, and you know, it, it was hard to hit. And it also led to a lot of hitters being hit by pitches. Right. And he suggests that Carl Mays, uh, or uh, Carl, what was the, Chapman died? Yeah, when yeah. Carl Mays, May, no, Mays was the pitcher. Mays was the pitcher, and maybe it was a spitball that allowed But, but he scuffed the ball. He, 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 the, the problem, the deal with Mays is, is that it can't, it, you couldn't see the ball. It was blackened. Yeah, yeah right. And so. it, kill, it killed somebody. I mean, yeah. and that's, Chapman you know, so you, you can't have it, but, but I do love that, you know, Gaylord Perry pitched for as long as he did throwing that spitter. And I don't know why or how. I don't know why they let him do it. And I don't know how he was able to get away with it, but he did. Well, they, they didn't at times. He, I lived in Detroit when he pitched for Cleveland. He was suspended a few times, as, as I recall. He definitely was suspended was once suspended. in the Detroit series. That I remember because I think Billy Martin basically called him on it. Well, it didn't Martin, stop him, though. Yeah. It didn't stop him from doing it. He did it his whole career. Right. You know? No, right. Right, right. He, he went to the Hall of Fame. He went to the Hall of Fame because of it, and I think it's great that he went to the Hall of Fame because of it. And I cheer Gaylord Perry for for finding a way to get by, but but I decry the Astros. Why why is that, Tom? You know, I mean, because well, maybe it's the pitcher is one guy alone. With the Astros, it's a conspiracy. It's easier to hate a conspiracy. And really, that falls under cheating too. And and I think since this game was invented. 
players have always looked to try to get an edge. Managers have looked to try to get an edge. GMs have tried to get an edge. And that's manifested itself into some pretty creative situations. And the one thing that I will have to say about the Astros, outside of the garbage can thing, which to me that's ludicrous, within – First of all, the league knew that that was going on, and you know the Astros wisely last year had a great combat to their sign stealing. But I have to give the Astros credit for creativity to the to the to the extent that they went to 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 try to get this edge is morally wrong, but it's impressive at the same time. Like you know you. You basically had people in the front office working on this. You had people on the field working on this. This is this is this is institutionalized cheating. And it's 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 bad as as steroids, it's bad as the the gambling, it's bad it's just anytime baseball to me when I think of it is pure. And anytime that you kind of go against that, um, well, kids are watching and it's just it's morally wrong. I, there's just nothing. There's no other way to say it. The, the ethics ultimately play a role in all of this. Yeah, yeah. All right. So let's uh, kind of try, if we can, to get off of it. It, it seems to be impossible to kind right. of get off of this subject. Well, we we still will revisit it when we talk about the Cubs here in a second. But what about is is there going to be a new playoff format in baseball? Well, something was something was leaked to the New York Post out of the commissioner's office. <clears throat> suggesting that, and this may have been done to kind of distract people from the Astros. Could be, could be. You know, but uh, basically it's been sort of suggested that you add another wild card team to the playoff possibility. So you two two playoff teams, one in each league. Yeah. Now the, the division winner with the best record, the one seed in each league, would get what's called a first round bye. Right. Then the remaining two division winners, or is it? Yeah, the, the remaining two division winners. No, no, no. The the next highest division winning seed gets right. to pick their opponent. Right. The net. Well, the next two division winners get to pick their opponent. No, no, the, no, 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 no. no. The yes. Two seed going first, and the right. three seed going second. Correct. Correct. But they but pick. Don't mistake about it. The second team doesn't get picked. They get picked what's left. <laughs> so exactly. so exactly. it's really the 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 first division winner. Uh, so, in other words, the, the three seed gets to pick who their opponent is. That's right. You're right. I'm sorry. I, I, I was thinking there were more wildcard teams. I'm thinking they're endless. But you're right. The the, the the number two seed gets to pick their opponent, which in turn... No, no, no. The three, it, sorry. The, the, fir, the first two seeds are on buys. The third seed picks their opponent. The fourth seed what has what's left. And then there's two remaining wildcard teams that have to play each other. They're not involved. I see. I see. I see. And so, right. the, the, this is... This right. is very controversial, and I, I'm guessing you don't like it. I, I didn't like it initially. I, I didn't like the idea that one team only had the bye. But now that it's now that I see that it's two teams, um, I think that's actually slightly better. Because I like it now because it gives one other team a chance to make the playoffs. And, and anything that generates interest for teams that are not in it, you know, or creates interest for teams that could get in it, I think is good because there's too many teams out of it who have no chance and uh, you have to give their fans a reason to cheer or come to the ballpark or be interested. So I I, love this. I I loved it from the minute I read it. And for two big reasons, one is like you said, it protects the integrity of the top two seeds, but then instead of having that crazy one, one game wild card, 
the the three and four seeds, whoever their opponents are, it's a three-game series where they're at home for all three games. Because you know what? You earned it by winning those divisions or being at that seed. You earned having that home field advantage. So I absolutely love this. But the second thing and the most important thing is it's more baseball. There's more teams involved. There's more games being played. I love it. I love it too now. I actually, now to hear you talk about because I, I didn't like it initially when I had thought, when I, when I was under the misapprehension yeah. that only one of the division winners would get that buy, would be sitting out and be above it all. Now that now that there's two teams, that really changes things. You know? it, it really does. Because it, 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 it sets aside two clear kind of, I won't say, for lack of a better term, pennant winners. You know, yeah. And those two teams enjoy a special status within the structure of the playoffs. I like that. So well, Trevor Bauer doesn't like it. No, he doesn't like it. And he ripped the commissioner's office. He's mad. He's got a, he took his pissed off pills or whatever. Yeah, he's, just, he's a, he's a Cincinnati's in for a wild ride with him. I'm going to tell you right now. Cause I, he, there's just, there's just something, like I said, he's missing a couple rivets. You just don't know what's going to happen with him. He's the reddest red ass there is. Yeah, right. Um, ever is. since that, ever since he got his hand almost cut off by that drone. Um, so uh, before we forget, I wanted to mention the passing of a couple of very important baseball players this week. Um, the first one was uh, Katsuya Nomura, um, who basically um, was a Japanese uh, Nippon legend, um, yes. second all-time in home runs um, to um, Satahara Ho'o, and arguably the greatest catcher that the, ja- that the Nippon League has ever known. Um, he ended up with 657 home runs and almost 2,000, 2000 RBIs, a tremendous uh, player who was uh, inducted into the Japanese Baseball Hall of Fame in 1989. And then, sadly, last night, um, Tony Fernandez, who basically played most of his career with the Toronto Blue Jays, uh, died in hospital. Um, it basically had a kidney issue, but he had a stroke when he was in the hospital and that stroke turned into pneumonia. And, uh, sadly he died at age 57. The reason why that's personally important to me is because one of my favorite seasons in baseball, I've talked about this before was 1987 when the Tigers came back from, uh, I think a three and a half or four and a half game, uh, behind the Blue Jays with two weeks left in the season, but they had like seven games against the Blue Jays, and I think they w- might have won all of them. But in a critical game, um, uh, Gibson took Fernandez out at second base. It was extremely controversial. It was all over the front pages of baseball newspapers the next day that basically Fernandez's season was, uh, was ended because Gibson, an ex-football player, really roughed him up at second. Well, it turns out that uh, Fernandez was a great player. He ended up with 2,300 hits and played for 17 seasons. He 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 was and he was a tremendous defensive shortstop. He was. he was a great defensive. Yeah, no, he was he was something. And and you got to see him play a lot up close because they were rivals for the division that year. Right. They were on you know Toronto's so close to Detroit. It's like Milwaukee to Chicago. You know what I mean? And well, uh, Fernandez that season was in the discussion for the MVP because uh, the year before. I think he had 213 hits as a shortstop, which was an American League record at the time. That's I've never, been broken. Seen, never seen a shortstop like him because he had these long, spindly legs yeah. and he had really big feet. And yeah. he had huge head and this very thin, skinny body and long arms. But he 
got to everything. He was really good. His footwork was really good around the bag. You know, he could hit a little bit. You know, he wasn't like this big power hitter. But right. he, he hit, and he was a really solid defensive player. He was probably – I mean, he could make an argument that he was – the best shortstop in baseball at the time. I mean, there are other. I, I don't know. Al, Alan Trammell would add something to say about that because Trammell was really, really good. The thing is, Trammell and Fernandez were both up for MVP that season, um, and and it was. I think it ended up going to George Bell, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, George, George Bell. Bell. Tremendous. I have to look it up. But the point I'm trying to make is is that what Gibson did to Fernandez ending his season, Gibson would be. Um, suspended today for that. Suspended. That's how rough yeah. that that takeout at second was. So, All right. so, sp- so speaking of Tigers, yeah. um, what's going on down in Lakeland, Florida, with with uh, somebody doing a homestead uh, down there? Well, there's a non-roster invitee uh, to the Detroit Tigers in Lakeland, Florida. So he's there on a minor league uh, contract. Alex, what is it? Alex uh, Ross? No. Alex Wilson. Alex Wilson. It was the same name as the the pitcher who pitched for the Cubs, who was on the Tigers. But anyway, so Alex Wilson is a non-roster invitee. He has a chance for a minor league contract. He goes to the camp in Lakeland, Florida, and he's living in his RV. Basically, he got permission from the city of, of Lakeland right. to plug into their uh, power system. It'll pay the electricity. And he's parked in the parking lot there by the ballpark, and right. he's living in his RV. And he's got a barbecue there, and he's had some of the players out to have a bite. And uh, it's a bit of a problem because the circus also uses the same parking lot. So he says it gets a little noisy, but I love this. I think, uh, you know, because it's expensive to, to rent a place down there. It's about three thirty five hundred to 4000 a month for, for wow. major league players to, to take up residency down there. He's paying like three fifty dollars in, in electrical bills. So right. it's actually, I love thinking like that because he, I think he's made a couple million in his career and he's obviously using it wisely. Yeah. Reminds me of that show, Trapper John, M.D., where the character Greg Evigan, you know, the young doctor, he lived in his mobile home in the parking lot. Well, if I'm I thought that um, uh, what's his name? Cespedes did that uh, on the Mets a couple years ago before he started showing up with a different million dollar car. I thought he had done it. And also it makes me think of Joe Madden in his RV as well. In his RV. Exactly. These are free spirits. These gentlemen, we like they are. They are. And then something that made both you and I smile is uh, oh, yeah. a friend of the show, uh, Big Sexy, Bartolo right. Colon. He's back in baseball, and I love it. What is he, 47, 48 years old? Yeah, and something like that. He's gonna be That's pitching. what he's claiming to be. Anyway. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he could be much older. But he'll be pitching with the Acereros de Monclova, which is in yes. the city of uh, Nuevo Leon. Or, or it's just about, actually, about 60, 70 miles northwest of the city of Nuevo Leon. And so. uh, he'll, you know, he's going to be, it's like they're kind of, it's the Mexican league's triple a yeah. and uh, he'll have uh, Rajay Davis as a teammate. Wow. And, uh, former major leaguer, Pat Listash is the manager. And if I could go to Mexico and see that man, <laughs> pitch, I would do so. To I, would- I, I completely agree. And um, we love big sexy. Oh. The thing about him that we talked about this, he's never had arm problems because of the way he throws. So, you know, he, he really hasn't. He's, he's not a power pitcher. He's never been a power pitcher. He used to As, be a power pitcher. He used to when be. he first started, everybody is when they first start. But I just think his last five or six years, he relied on his, you know, his good looks and, uh, 
and and creativity and and I love the guy. I just to me I look at him and I'm 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 like, well, how are you even close to being an athlete? But not just that, you won 250 games in the major leagues. That is impressive, dude. It is impressive. It is impressive. And you hit a home run. Mm-hmm. And well, there was that's no, right. I forgot about that. <laughs> nobody happier about that than me and you. Me too, man. I was the second most happiest. All right, so let's talk about the Chicago Cubs. Let's yeah, quickly get through this. Uh, Brandon Morrow. John Lester and Josh Fegley uh, react to the Astros' apology. And uh, I loved what John Lester had to say. Me too. I thought that was chilling, by the way. It really was. It's like, you know what? Basically, he said, we have a way of taking care of this. And that's my way. That that my reading between the lines is that, Altuve, you're getting plunked, buddy. (laughs) He he didn't say, we have. He said baseball has a way of taking care of it. Right. I, it, I, I it, does, it does imply that. Royal, like, I don't care. I don't care. It's in the past. You can't do anything about it. Let's right. move on. You know right. what I mean? And I loved it. Fegley was a little angry. Flegley or whatever. Flegley. Does he play for the ace? He 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 had firsthand um, result action of what what the Astros did to to the to the A's, and it was substantial, especially towards the end of the season. They really roughed them up the last two or three years. Whereas Brandon Morrow, who loses to the Astros in that World Series, who pitched, he pitched great, by the way. Pitched in all seven games. Yeah. And, uh, but he, he was like, well, you know, when they hit me, it wasn't because they had my sides. He didn't feel like, you know what I mean? He felt like the responsibility of, of anything that he failed at doing in that World Series was his own fault. He didn't feel like stealing signs had anything to do with it from right. his point of view, you know. But uh, again, I think that's these are basically that's classy of of, of Marl to say that. But this is all part of the whole tentacles of this story that just as as us having a show like this, it's the gift that keeps on giving. It is. We'll we'll be talking about about the Astros all year long. um, But this is a perfect example of like you were talking about how there's going to be these little cottage industries that occur from a story standpoint in regards to this whole scandal. <laughs> well, all right. Now, now there was a rumor floating around, and I don't know if you heard this. I heard this, and then I looked for it. I couldn't find anything about it. But yeah. it had been proposed or suggested that there would be a three-team trade where the Cubs send Chris Bryant to the Cleveland Indians, who yeah. in turn send um, Francisco Lindor to the New York Mets, who in turn send Noah Syndergaard to the Chicago Cubs. Now, the trade didn't happen, but... What if it had? Thank God it didn't. That's a terrible trade for the Cubs because as much as I love Syndergaard and he's a premier pitcher, he's got two or three seasons left before that arm falls off. And Bryant, I bet you, has eight to ten seasons left. I would never, ever make that trade. If if he comes in, can you imagine, though, if he comes in, if, if Darvish returns to form and then now you have Syndergaard and you have Hendricks and you have Lester and, you know – and Quintana, that's that's a great pitching staff. You'll be able to beat anybody. That would, you know, for I, two I, years, I, there'd be. I, I think that, you know, Lester's good for six to eight wins. Don't count too much on him. His, he, he's he's definitely on, on the downside of his career. And you're right. Syndergaard could give us 15 wins, and there would be an immediate impact to our team. But I really believe Noah's got a lot of innings on that arm, and I just I would never trade a, a blue chip piece like Bryant for anything less than an Arenado myself. But, but, or or of a, a, a Lindor is a great player too, but I wouldn't trade him for a pitcher who 
basically will give you two to three great years. And then you see Bryant playing for six or seven years afterwards. That would drive me nuts. But see, the thing is, if you look at the value, though, they only have value for Bryant for two seasons. I know. I know. And so, I mean, it doesn't matter if Bryant's going to be a great player for eight to ten years. You're not giving up the six years after the first two. So that's why I think that it would be valuable. That's value for value, I think. If they got that is that's a great um, that's a great argument for it. I, I get that, but to me, um, especially um, after reading more about Chris Bryant's take on all of this, um, I, I I started looking at him more favorably because it appears as though there's been some misinformation put out about his intention. I still fault him for causing this issue. Um, and well, and he, he believes he believes that he's helping players 20 or 30 years from now. I respect that. But basically what Brian is saying is, I ne- first of all, I never turned down a $200 million offer, number one. Number two, I never, ever said I wanted to play anywhere else but here. And the fact is, I love this place. I love how it's helped my family and, 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 and changed my life. And, and he would love to finish his career here. And I just think that if we're getting rid of this blue chip player, we need to get a blue chip player in return. I see. I see. All right. Well, that's, you know, he's an admirable young man and he's yeah. the, the one cub my wife is attracted to. So, <laughs> so we be, we, we, well, my, my wife, and it would make sense, is attracted to big sexy. So. Uh, <laughs> All right. So uh, Albert Almora Jr. Right. Or Ian, two center fielders the Cubs have who have been good and who yeah. have been bad. And yeah, they're, they're both like, junk. It looks like they'll both be given the shot to win the center field job. Who's going to take it? I don't know. They're both terrible players. I, 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 I you, we've spoken about this. Al Mora cannot hit right-handed pitching, um, and or, I'm sorry, left-handed pitching. Left-handed. Right, no, left-handed no, pitch. He can't pitch right. Hit. He's only hits lefties. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're right. It's, it's very early. And so that's a tremendous flaw that's not going to get better. And over four or five seasons, he never improved upon it. I don't think Rossi's going to get him any better off at that. To me, he's a great defensive player that has no business being on a major league roster, certainly not the Cubs. Ian Happ, for the opposite reason, like you said, Ian Happ is a really decent hitter, a timely hitter, but he's kind of clunky. He's not a guy that I would ever put in, in the outfield. He, he, to me, he's like a DH. He should be in the American League. No, he's not that bad. He's, he's not, bad. He's not that bad. He's hapless. He's hapless, yes. He's, he's, <laughs> he's Ian hapless. Yeah. We'll say and that. I don't want any Mora of Almora. So uh, that, that's why that's why I think the, that's why I think the Cubs are going to struggle this year is because they have guys like him and Descalso uh, is still on the team. These are not these are not blue chip players. I'm I'm sorry. Well, you know what? I, I I love Almora. I love the way he plays defense. I think he's just great in center field. I think he's a guy who may be managing the Cubs in six or seven years. Uh, have, could be. I mean, he's a haunted man. Ever since that that hit on that child, yeah. they say he's basically been haunted by it, and and rightly so. That that child has brain damage. So well, he's, he's one of the most intelligent players uh, I've seen, except for when he's at the plate. But uh, but yeah. Hap Hap, you know, is interesting because he's a switch hitter, and right. they talk about oh well his OPS. Everybody loves to talk about his OPS in the second half of last year. I mean, I, I think that there's a higher upside. You know, uh, that you do lose something with Hap defensively, but what you gain offensively, what, what the potential of what you can gain offensively, I think, offsets 
what uh, Al Mora's potential is offensively, which is not very much. You know? I think what you're what you're describing is that Hap could be an inning one through seven player because of his offense, and then El Mora would be brought in for defensive purposes. Exactly right. I think that we'll see it. So, all right. Now the Cubs also made a free agent signing. They signed uh, Northbrook native Jason Kipnis to a minor league contract, and this is a guy who grew up right up the street from me here in uh, in. Uh, Northbrook, I live in Glenview. Actually, he was a neighbor of uh, Steve Bartman, the infamous Steve Bartman. Do you right. think he has anything that he can contribute to this team? I still think there's something left in Kip, uh, Kipnis's tank, and I thought that that was a really um, win-win signing by the Cubs. It really can't hurt us. It yeah. may end up being like Murphy was a couple of years ago, where it, you know that that we see that there's still you know there's some flaws in his game. I think what the issue with Kipnis is is that it's the bat speed. It'll be you'll be able to tell I think right off the bat. First of all, if he wins the job over uh, what's his name, our, our phenom, that that's the other thing too. Is Nico that, Horner, yeah, yeah, is the message that it sends to Nico is that we don't feel you're the the, the full time player yet. And in fact, the word on the street is that Nico is going to start the season in AAA, which. I just think that's a little troubling because I thought he played pretty well towards the end of last year. I, I hope they give this kid a fair shot. And Kipnis may just end up being a pinch hitter for us in the in the in the right. ideal situation that Horner wins the job and Kipnis backs him up and maybe teaches him. Because if Kipnis is the full time guy out of the gate, well, that says something there about what they feel well, about the development of Nico. Yeah, you're right. That's good. All right. So who do you think deserves to be the Cubs' opening day starter? Well, I think this, this, this. I, I have a very strong opinion about this now. So, rem, so let's just kind of take a step back and, know, and understand that Lester has has had this role for Every, I think five or six seasons, with the exception of of Jake Arrieta, oh, fresh yeah. off his Cy Young award, they gave it to him, I believe, in 2016, and rightly That's, so. But but Lester has kind of owned, owned this right, or I should say, earned this right to be the opening day starter based on his performance. That's not the case anymore. And to me, I think the clear-cut opening day starter is you, Darvish. Absolutely. I completely agree 100%. Dar Darvish needs to get the ball opening day. And then uh, then you go Hendricks. Correct. And then you go Lester. And then you go Quintana and then Chatwood or... I would put a Quintana, then Lester, and then Chatwood. I really am... I, I'm really... Um, down on Lester because what happened to him at the end of his season last year, I've seen happen to many veteran pitchers and almost none of them ever came back from it unless they were using some type of steroid to do it. it, it, it I would expect to see more of inconsistency and poor performances and maybe Lester retiring midseason. I think what you'll see with Lester is double digit wins and no he'll go out there and he'll gut out a few wins, he'll look bad in a few other starts, and he'll take the ball every fifth day. And whether you think he's their third best pitcher or their fourth best pitcher, you know what yeah. I mean? It, it really doesn't matter. The role doesn't change that much. I think, I mean, what, when you when you went when you went out said out loud, Darvish, um, uh, Hendricks, Quintana, and then uh, Lester, and then Chatwood, you're certainly rating the Cubs starting pitchers one through five correctly. However, I still think you might see Lester move up in the rotation just so you can get a lefty-righty lefty-righty thing going. I, I think that that may be a possible strategic move. 
I, I, you know, you're very idealistic, and that's what we love about you. I hope you're right. I just, I just think that Father Time it just marches on, and it only gets worse. Oh, yeah. The only, the only saving grace for Lester is he's got a tremendous will to win. So if anybody can do it, it's him. I mean, the guy's overcome cancer. He's, he's, he's been, he's been thrown to the, to the scrap heap like two or three times in his career, and has bounced back. I just think when you get to be 38. Uh, into that range and the innings that he's had, it's just difficult. If let's put it this way, Leo, if he if he wins ten games or more, the Cubs are going to be in a really good position this year. I'll, I will say that. Ten games last year. I mean, they didn't. You know what I mean? It doesn't. Yeah, but look at the second half. Is going to make if he wins ten games, he'll. I, I mean, I don't know. I, look at the second. Look at the second half, Leo. It was. It was. It was terrible. Was, well, I mean, he had some bad outings. There's no question. But he, listen, he guts it out. He knows yeah. what he's doing, and that's the thing. Agreed. All right. So uh, there was an interview with ESPN that Joe Madden did, and uh, yeah. it, it kind of revealed that the departure between the Cubs, or that Joe Madden's departure from the Cubs, was a little more contentious, maybe than we had been led to believe. That there were some serious philosophical differences, and Theo decided a long time ago when he announced that he would not negotiate with Madden's agent for an extension, that the writing was on the wall. You know, Joe, I would almost say to Joe, Joe, you shouldn't have done this. You should, first of all, I'm of the mind that this stuff should have stayed between him and Epstein. That being said, I really like the fact that Epstein took the high road. It's, it's almost like, Joe, you have a little bit of bitterness, and I can understand that. Maybe you didn't want to leave the Cubs. It appears as though that, that, that is the case. But it kind of supports some of the things that, that you and I have been talking about over the last couple seasons, where he kind of was a laissez-faire manager, and Epstein you know, wants Rossi to be more hands-on and, and to hold these players more accountable. And, you know, I, I love men, and I'll, we both talked about it. He's the greatest manager the Cubs ever had. He got us a World Series. I mean, we can't – but the reality is is that, you know, the, every year since that World Series, we've been worse off. And one of the reasons why is I, – I, I've said it, and I'll keep saying it, he doesn't handle pitching stats very well. That's part of the problem. But the other part of the problem is he's one of those veteran managers, kind of like Dusty, who is kind of hands-off more of a laissez-faire manager and sometimes I think I'm with Epstein I think you have to hold you have to be held accountable and it's you the the greatest managers have always never been satisfied and it just seems as though man was just too too much of a complacent guy to a certain degree and now you come out and you have these bitter you know basically you know it's just bitter grapes that you're talking about here just, Joey you should probably shouldn't have given this interview would be my advice to you well, I think I think Epstein maybe is is suggesting um, that uh, Madden needed to take a soldier out and shoot him. Right. And that uh, takes us right into our movie <laughs> discussion. Nice segue, buddy. We're going to talk about Paths of Glory. Um, yeah. And we chose this movie for a couple reasons. Number one, it's a great, tremendous movie. It's a one one of the best movies I've ever seen. I think you would agree. And it's also because uh, Kirk Douglas uh, was the star who was in it. And we recently lost him as he passed away at the age of 102. Three. 103. 103 last week. So so he scores very high, 103. He went out with 103. So um, let's begin by saying that, uh, first of all, this movie was extremely controversial when it came out in the 1950s, 1959, I think. 
And uh, it, 57, 57, it was released. And you're right. Um, France, I think France and Spain, by the way, Franco wouldn't let this movie be showed in Spain yeah. until 1986 was when it first was aired there. Um, but France took real exception um, to the story. And so let's just kind of fill in our listener. Basically, the story is about middle management. Um, it's it's about um, a general who ordered a, um, a colonel to uh, attack a position that the colonel did not feel entirely comfortable because of the risk involved, but the general forced him to do it. And then when they failed, the, uh, which was something that was commonplace in, in, the, in the French army, and not just in the French army, they, they did this uh, hundreds of years ago, they would, if, if you failed, they would have sacrificial lambs and they would have, you know, uh, court marshals and they would have shooting of what they thought over cowardice. If, right. if, if you kind of fell back off of the position, which didn't even happen, that's not really even what happened on the battlefield. But really, to me, the whole story is about middle management and, and the frailties of middle, middle management, whereas Douglas plays this colonel who wanted to protect his people. And then when they failed, the general said, you need to come up with three sacrificial lambs who are going to be shot because of cowardice. And, and, and Douglas goes on, the Colonel, Colonel Dax goes yeah. on to defend the three soldiers who were chosen. One is chosen by, at random by lot, just by complete chance. Yeah. One is chosen because he's a social undesirable. And that guy's played by the great Timothy Carey. Who, we'll uh, talk about him in a second. We'll talk about him in a second. And then the third is chosen because he has knowledge of cowardice in the face of the enemy on the part of his superior officer who chooses him to shut him up. Yep. You know? And uh, I mean, so it's really dramatic. And the rest of the movie is basically their court martial where Dax has to defend them in a kangaroo court where the whole process is rigged. And they take these three guys out. And, you know, you think at the last minute there's going to be this reprieve because the general had ordered firing on his own positions, you know, and yeah. that was to finally be the saving grace for these guys. But no, they go out and shoot him anyway. And it's really a powerful statement on war, the insanity of war, the, uh, the utter just absurdity of the power that these men have over the lives of people who they've never met. And uh, it's, it's just a great work of art. And if you have- It is, you know, the, until this film was made, the greatest film on World War One was All Quiet on the Western Front. And then this movie kind of eclipsed it, even though, ironically, it wasn't nominated for one Oscar, um, which that year was won by the great Bridge Over the River Kwai, and that, that movie actually is a better film. But you can make the case that until this year, until 1917 came out, that Paths of Glory was the greatest movie on World War One ever made. Um, and it just gets better and better with time. Um, and, you know, part of it is, is, you know, Douglas does a tremendous job, but the other part is it's a Stanley Kubrick production and he's, ba he's hardly ever had a misfire in his life. No, this, he, he has had misfires, but, he, it, but I said hardly, yes, he has, but, but hardly ever you know, like it, it, it's technically beautiful to watch. And, and as you and I talked about how much money they spent this year to make 1917, building those almost a mile of trenches, they did the same thing here. The trenches yeah. were incredible. Um, and and those, those shots that, that Kubrick likes to do where the people are walking towards you and the camera right. is on track, Correct. basically walking away from these guys as they're that, that he, he really makes the most of that kind of a shot in this movie. And, you know, it's funny you mentioned just now 
you know, we talked about how it was banned in France and then it was banned in Spain until 1986. Yeah. 1986, I was studying in Spain at the time, and that's when I saw it for the first time. I saw it when it had been released in Spain for the first time. And, uh, you know, we were all just blown away. And part of, you know, one of the great, I mean, Douglas is so fantastic at the center of this and Adolf Manchu as the corrupt general. And, you know, it, it's a tremendous movie. What's the name of the, I'm not, no, I'm trying to think, George McCready as General yeah. McRoe, you know, okay. sort of driving this thing. So McCready has this gigantic pronounced scar on, yes. the, on his right cheek. And everyone thinks that that's, you know, was makeup. That was a result of a car accident in 1920. That's a now they accentuated it with makeup, but that's a real scar on McCready's face. McCready yeah, had a tremendous career, secondary career in Hollywood. Yeah. Um, he, he did a lot of movies. He was in uh, The Great Race. He was just always playing these kind of I don't know these these upper class guys. But uh, the the one actor's performance. Well, well, before you talk about him, I just want to talk about Joe Turkle who plays one of the three guys who also played Lloyd in The Shining and uh, along with Ralph Meeker. And, and he was the uh, he's the which one was he? Was he the he one? was the one that was basically with the skull fracture that they oh, had to prop up right. at the end. He's the and, bartender in The Shining. Yes, that's oh. that's Joe. That's Joe Turkle, who was, uh, I think, almost in every. The thing about uh, uh, Kubrick is that once you were with him, in his stable, you were in, basically he would put you in every movie that he did. And I think Turkle was in a few of his movies, um, well, but most prominently. Well, the principal, if you weren't a principal, the principals. Correct, did. correct. He swapped, swapped those guys up, but I'm talking about the supporting cast, but yeah. certainly his crew, most of his crew, the cinematography guys and all that stayed with him forever. Yeah, they did, they did. But, uh, but we have to talk, we can't yes. talk about the great uh, character actor, Timothy Carey, yes. who plays one of the condemned, the one who's the social uh, undesirable. And, uh, you know, at first he's, he's kind of an intellectual, you know, it's private Maurice Ferrault, private Ferrault. Right. And he comes out and he's very honest. And he talks about, you know, at the trial, how he fought and how far he'd gotten and how brave he had been. And, you know, it, but then he's the one you think that he's this kind of intellectual but then he's the one who turns to God and prays and begs for forgiveness and confesses. And then as they trot them out to shoot them, he's the one who has the, the uh, he has a breakdown. Right. You know, the, one is unconscious. The other does it very bravely, but his character kind of is like, I don't want to die. I fought. And he's, you know, and that's a really powerful sort of, that, that, that doesn't leave you, man. That was good. Well, Timothy Carey, one of my favorite, if anybody that knows me knows that, First of all, I follow his his Facebook page uh, that's done by somebody in his family, I think. I've been a fan of Timothy Carey since I first became aware of him, which I think was in the 1970s, because at this point in his career, he uh, did a couple of Columbo episodes. and he was Columbo, just Starsky and Hutch, man. Yeah. He, did he, he was in one episode of Columbo where... He, I think he, he he's a butcher shop guy. And in the, the other episodes, he plays the same guy. He doles out uh, chili to, to Columbo. But in this one episode, he plays this other character where he's these these guys are about to rough him up. And he looks at him. He goes, hey, whoa, I'm an only child. <laughs> uh, Timothy Carey was one of the most idiosyncratic uh, actors that ever lived. And this film sabotaged, he sabotaged his career. He was never yeah. the same after this. He was fired from the production because he staged 
his own kidnapping for publicity purposes. And Kubrick was so incensed with him that he fired him on the spot so that you see a couple of shots of him where the, he has his back to the camera. That's only because it's not really Carrie. They fired him before the, the movie ended. He had, if you look at his career and the movies that he's made, going back to the wild one with Marlon Brando, to Bayou, where he does this crazy Calypso dance in, in Louisiana, he just was one of these guys that was just crazy. And and it, it while they were making this film, Kubrick was at parts mad, but at parts hilarious because he knew that Kerry was getting underneath Kirk Douglas's skin and Kubrick started encouraging him. Yeah, yeah, that's really funny. He staged his own kidnapping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was Jesse, he was Jesse Smollett. You know? Correct. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And the fact is, if you look at his 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 credits after that, it it basically ended his career. He was on a six or seven picture arc leading yeah. up through fifty seven. That you know, you know, people were like, "Who is this guy?" in the movies, and then he was relegated to like you know uncredited roles on Gunsmoke, and then you know he did his own. He did the. If you get a chance to see The World's Greatest Sinner, which is a film he made and produced, which is a bomb, by the way. I've yeah. I've seen parts of it. I have not seen the whole thing. Um, it, you'll just understand just that he sabotaged himself every way that he possibly could. But that resulted in us as the viewer of seeing just an absolutely great character actor. Really? No, that's absolutely correct. You know, it'll be, it's funny because these are, you know, I compared him to Jesse Smollett. I mean, these are two actors who staged something to advance yes. their career. That's cool. and, uh, and, and, the sa and the same result to Smollett um, will happen as well. It's, it, it's going to ruin his career. And it this this ruined Carey's career. He became a basically a two-bit actor after that. And then he, I think he passed away in the, in the mid-1990s. Um, and just, you know, there's been a lot of great character actors. In, you know, maybe the greatest character actor was Walter Brennan, who won back-to-back -back Oscars um, in the 1930s. But Carey was definitely one of the craziest ones that, when you see him on screen, you just can't take your eyes off of this guy. No, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, he's just got such an unusual look and his voice that nasally voice. It sounds like he has a stuffed up nose. Correct. But, but I don't know. It's, uh, it's, it's, uh, man. And he died. When did he die? Recently? I think he died in 95 or 94. Um, and, and like I said, leading up to that point, he was making like short movies. Like he, his career was, was, was nothing except, you know, I think he, he was able to earn some money by being in television in the, in the sixties and seventies, right. but it looked like he was making a living in television. <laughs> You know, yes, but, yes, but uh, but you're right. I mean, he he the films stopped happening for him, and uh, maybe you know, no director wanted him around after he, yeah, he died in '94, May of '94, at age 65, relatively young. Um, but he, you know, he he was just a really interesting guy. And if you ever get a chance to see his earlier work, it's it's certainly well worth it. Um, but, uh, you know, because he, he was he was a and, and particularly the film Bayou, which was made in the same year in 1957. He plays this wacky guy named Ulysses. And, and if you haven't seen uh, YouTube, Tim Carey and Bayou and watch him do his crazy uh, Louisiana dance, it's it, that may be the greatest performance of his career. Well, I, I started watching scenes of the killing. Uh, which yeah, is he's in that film as well. Carey does with uh, Kubrick. And I was looking at some of his scenes there, and the, those were kind of interesting. He plays, he has to shoot a horse, a racehorse, right. with a high-powered rifle, and he right. really 
really wants to do it. You know what I mean? Yeah, he, right, he's very, right. <laughs> a little too happy about it. You know exactly. I mean? Exactly. So, uh, you know, it was, yeah, I, I need to see that whole movie. It, um, it's, it's, it's so funny. Cause in the, the world, the way that Hollywood is today, I'm not so sure a guy like Carrie would ever have been in a movie because he's just not that attractive. Like you have to be, you have to have a certain look today to, to be in films and they don't really put a premium on, you know, guys that, uh, you know, are well, physically challenged with, from their looks department. You, and so, and he chooses guys like that though. It chooses a guy, a guy like uh, Christopher Walken, you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, well, even even Walken is is long in the tooth now. Would would Walken even be around today? Except that Walken was a great young actor. He wasn't a supporting actor. He was he was a he was a lead. So um, I just all I would say to our fan out there is to go back and look at the stuff prior to 1960, and you'll see a, a guy that uh, was just really interesting. He used to drive directors absolutely crazy because he would never do the same. So for example, in Paths of Glory. They yeah. had to do 68 takes of him eating that piece of duck in his last meal because he did it differently every time. And <laughs> I finally, they finally, I think, went up to like 74 takes. And, and Kubrick was furious with, with Timothy Carey. And, you know, Carey was just sitting there laughing inside about it. Like he would get off on the fact that he was, you know, there was a movie going on inside a movie with Carey at all times. You know, what's interesting, though, when we talk about Paths of Glory is that it is unlike other Kubrick movies in that it uh, gets it moves along. It's yeah. quick. In its well, it's an hour and 28 minutes. Yeah. I mean, you get the trial and you get the death and it happens. Bang, bang, bang. And right. uh, that's not like many of his other movies, which have a tendency sometimes uh, to to sort of move real slow. You know, so uh, and, and also the black and white photography was beautiful. It, it was. just it just was beautiful. It's beautiful. You hear my children stomping around upstairs. All right, so that's that's all for t for this week. Uh, remember, we're uh, two peas in a podcast, and uh, right. we'll be this back at you. How long have we been at this uh, today? Since the late forties. It's the late. Okay, okay. I meant today, Tom. I meant today. today. We've been at for a little more than an hour. Well, we're not. It didn't seem like it. I really had a good time, and I hope you did too. Me too. Have have a great week. All right. All right. See you later. Over now. I'll bang the drum slowly and play the five lows. Play the dead march as they carry me along. Put bunches of roses all over my coffin. Roses to deaden the clouds as they fall. <laughs>